Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for another opportunity, Lord, to come before thy throne of grace. Lord, we ask that you would forgive us for our sins, our transgressions, and our iniquities, and that you would cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We ask as we come to you this morning, Lord, oh, that you would hide me behind the cross of Calvary, that your word would be spoken today, that hearts would be renewed, that those that are hurting in need, the Lord will hear your still small voice. Even now, Lord, we ask that you would send angels to be by my side to strengthen me. And even now that you would send the angel from the throne of grace to lift a live coal from all the altar of sacrifice to place upon my life. Please, Father, give me freedom of speech. Bring to my remembrance those things that you desire that I should speak. And, Lord, I ask that you would speak to me, that I would just be an empty vessel. And now, Lord, we ask that your word would go forth, that your people would hear your still, still small voice in that hearts would be converted afresh and new on this your holy Sabbath day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The topic uh, this morning is the addicted brain. Again, the topic for this morning is the addicted brain. Certain habits of men are like luxurious vines. They destroy the trees they decorate. Uh, that was a uh, quote by Abraham Lincoln. Habits, we all have them. Habits are our friends when they are good ones. Habits are routines that help us perform multiple tasks with minimal mental effort. They help us repeat safe and effective behaviors and build consistency and security into our lives. In mechanical fashion, we drive a familiar route to work, brush our teeth, from front to back, enjoy our daily walk with the dog, twist a certain lock of hair when we are nervous, or put the right shoe on before the left. Family habits such as enjoying mealtimes together and regular bedtime improve emotional well-being and physical health for all ages. The brain is constantly learning new ways to increase the efficiency with which we perceive and respond to our world. Just as commercial airplanes can fly a perfect course on automatic, pilots be freeing, free, freeing the captain to watch for danger and monitor the controls, so habits. The brain's automatic pilot enables us to perform safe, effective routines that help us cope with daily life. At the same time, they free up mental resources for making new decisions and meeting the necessary challenges and changes of an uncertain world. Automation in planes and brains is great, but what happens when the automatic pilot becomes dysfunctional and gets stuck in the wrong routine? Every other control is weakened or rendered powerless with disease looming on the horizon unless the renegade routine is righted. Instead of being tame servants, 
dysfunctional habits can become rootless tyrants, relentless, illogical, expensive, depressing, isolating, and destructive. They weave themselves around us like silken cobwebs, but soon become iron chains that squeeze us more tightly the more we struggle to get free. It has been said that old habits die hard, and that is true. But the fact that, that they can do and die is the reason for this book. It is possible to change because life is all about change. The brain is more than just a device for recording change. Because as we change, the brain changes right along with us. Forming habit forming. Forming new habits or breaking old ones is one way that the brain changes. Habits can range in intensity from mildly annoying, such as the nervous accountant who keeps his fingernails bitten, to the illogical and uncontrollable, such as the compulsive bulimic or who engages in food binging and purging many times a day. Bad habits can sometimes become addictions. Addiction is viewed in many and varied ways. In the past, the term addiction was used only to refer to the compulsive need for and use of a habit-forming substance, such as heroin, nicotine, or alcohol. Addictions were characterized by drug tolerance and the withdrawal symptoms a user experienced when not using the drug. Sigmund Freud's use of tobacco provides a good example of serious addiction to a substance that's nicotine. Smoking about 20 cigars a day caused Freud to have a serious heart ar arrhythmia. And upon the advice of a friend, he tried to stop. But Freud found the subsequent depression during periods of abstinence almost unbearable. He continued to smoke heavily despite admitting that it hindered his analytical studies. He later developed sores on his palate and jaw that failed to heal, so he had surgery, the first of 33 for cancer. He complained that he was out of work and could not swallow, yet he continued to smoke. His heart condition forced him to retire, and he eventually had to have his entire jaw removed and and an artificial jaw substituted. In constant pain, often he could not speak, chew, or swallow. Yet Freud continued to smoke what a friend termed an endless series of cigars. However, drugs are not the only factor in addiction. Freud's long-term compulsive destructive drug behavior even after months of abstinence is truly remarkable, since it takes only 30 hours for nicotine to clear the system. Clearly, a failure to stop cannot be linked to the discomfort of withdrawal symptoms alone. Such conclusions have triggered a broader understanding of the meaning of addiction and what it encompasses. Today, addiction has been more broadly defined to include not only the use of drugs, but also persistent compulsive behaviors that are harmful or destructive, characterized by an inability to stop. It is recognized that structural changes take place in the brain 
when any addiction occurs, whether or not drugs are involved. While most people are aware of the acute short-term withdrawal symptoms with some addictions, they are not aware that there are long-term effects that can last for years. To hope that a recovering addict will be able will be back to normal within a couple of months after treatments is neither realistic nor fair for the addict. Nestor and Landsman in 2001 affirmed that a major feature of addiction is this chronicity. A person can experience intensive cravings for the substance, activity, or behavior and remain at increased risk for relapse even after years of abstinence, especially if they don't develop proper strategies for long-term success. Expanding Addictions The addiction picture is bigger than drugs. Howard Schaefer, who heads the Division of Addictions at Harvard University, asserts that drug use is not a necessary and sufficient cause of addiction. It is improper to consider drugs as the necessary precondition for addiction. A lot of addiction is the result of experience, repetitive, high-emotion, high-frequency experience. Stanford University psychologist Brian Knudsen agrees it stands to reason if you can derange these circuits with pharmacology or drugs, you can do it with natural rewards too. What is coming up fast as being the central core issue is continued engagement in self-destructive behavior despite adverse consequences, says Stephen Grant of the National Institute on Drug Abuse. The development of an addiction is a process that involves more than drugs and can take place even in the absence of drugs. With this expanded definition, addictions can take the form of not only drugs but food, gambling, shopping, overwork, sex, television, or any other activity that becomes excessive, destructive, or compulsive. This does not mean that all addictions have the same results. Substance addictions involve the introduction of a chemical agent that has varied consequences. Behavioral addictions may involve activities that are are in and of themselves normal and even necessary, such as eating or using the internet. In this case, total abstinence is impossible, but rather remodeling the behavior and thinking concerning the activity is essential. In fact, all addictive tendencies require vigilance and remodeling of thinking and behavior. One example of a non-drug addiction is food. Notice how similar the behavior and thinking of this psychologist and former food addict compared with a typical drug addict. I knew from my own internal experience with just how compelling a food craving can be, how powerful and irresistible my food addiction had seemed like a curse, 
preventing me from feeling like a normal person. I knew my relationship with certain foods was not normal. I knew that my thinking and obsessing, planning and boarding, sneaking and hiding resembled the behavior of an addict. They are profoundly different physical, emotional, social, and personal effects of addictions, and they will vary widely with each addiction and person. Addictive disorders can also be related to underlying disease processes or head injury. Always work with your physician and get a complete evaluation. While new research points to the marvelous ability of the brain to change, there are points of no return for some brain changes impacted by addiction, especially those involving substances. These changes will vary with each individual. However, the delivered stories um, show that the hope of recovery can become a reality. The process of addiction. The process of addiction involves four stages, experimental and or say social engagement in the substance, activity or behavior. Number two, problem use, abuse of the substance, activity or behavior. Number three, addiction. And number four, recovery and relapse. Stage one, involves occasional engagement, perhaps a few times monthly, maybe on weekends. Reasons for entering stage one are to satisfy curiosity, peer pressure, to be accepted socially, to defy parents, to take a risk or seek a thrill, to relieve boredom or to produce pleasurable feelings and or to be entertained. A person in stage 1 feels little or no physical or psychological change in the absence of his or her, or her addictive substance or behavior. Stage 2 involves regular participation in the activity or behavior, either alone or with others. Reasons for stage 2 involvement may include to manipulate one's emotions, to experience pleasure, to cope with stress and uncomfortable feelings such as pain, guilt, anxiety, sadness, depression, to overcome feelings of, of inadequacy to keep from feeling down because of not engaging in the activity or behavior. In stage 2, a person may experience a decline in performance at work, church, school, or in other settings. There may be mood swings, personality changes, dishonesty, changes in friendships, intimacy problems, or decreased interest in other activities. More acting out, behaviors may be seen, and all interest is focused on engaging in the activity or behavior. Stage 3 involves frequent, continuous use. Reasons here may include avoiding pain and depression, escaping the realities of daily living, and loss of control over the frequency of engaging in the activity or behavior. 
the behavior or substance now controls them. In stage 3, changes may include physical deterioration, poor appearance, or volatile mood swings such as aggression, irritation, depression, and apathy. If alcohol and drugs use are involved, there may be memory loss, flashbacks, and or paranoia. In this stage, an addict's most frequent state is pain or discomfort and engaging in the ad addictive activity in an attempt to achieve normalcy. Because they are more focused on escaping the pain of withdrawal than on the pleasure of a high, addicts are unlikely to experience euphoria at this stage, but they do experience deteriorated relationships, guilt, shame, remorse, and may even consider suicide. In stage 4, the recovery process, a person may experience a relapse into an old behavior, but that does not mean he or she is doomed to fail. It means that person needs to develop watchfulness, new thinking patterns, and a new supportive lifestyle. This is a growing process that helps the brain, body, and spirit to grow and resolve and to develop new habits. Mistakes can be turned into victories when you refuse to give up and continue to practice those positive choices. Haywire or hotwired. When an addiction develops, what is happening in the brain? For one thing, the pleasure circuits in the brain become hijacked by the addictive substance or behavior and stop functioning in harmonious concert with other brain circuits. Judgment and reason take a back seat to habits that have taken over the pleasure and motivational centers of the brain, making them repeatedly produce intense cravings. This is followed by a reward cascade of pleasure Neurotransmitters, chemicals that transmit information from one brain cell to another, including dopamine, serotonin, and capillin, GABA, when that craving is satisfied. These repeated quick fixes for pleasure paralyze the regulatory mechanisms of the brain that put the brakes on pleasure neurotransmitters with their message that say, Stop, I am satisfied. When the process happens enough times, the normal pleasures of life may become blurred or even of no interest to the addict. Why? Well, one reason is that with repeated abuse, the amount of neurotransmitter Release in response to normal stimuli is reduced. Now the feelings of satisfaction that were produced by these neurotransmitters, especially dopamine, under normal pleasurable circumstances such as eating a cookie are not felt with the same intensity. Bigger sensations and surging rushes of pleasure are required to get the lift that provides a feeling of well-being and normalcy. And the addict will do anything to get it, 
even if it lasts only for a moment. Another reason is that the brain records information about what produced pleasurable responses in the past. In the normally functioning brain, these memories are used to help the individual decide what needs to be done next. Thus, we are able to order our lives and decide when it is when is the appropriate time to eat, go for a walk, read a book, or enjoy the company of friends. For the addict, the only motivation that exists is to obtain the source of the addiction. All other motivations and goals, whether short or long term, are overwhelmed by addiction-generated cravings. In other words, addiction is a form of learning, but it is learning wrong routines or habits that destroy rather than promote well-being and block normal desires and habits, such as eating and spending time with loved ones. Addictive drugs in particular enhance the action of a brain transmuter called glutamate, one of the most common neurotransmitters in the brain. Glutamate interacts with dopamine in the pleasure circuits, but also is involved in memory centers that strongly fix the habit in the brain as a learned behavior. Examining how glutamate is used in the brain helps to understand why cravings are so powerful in the addict. Because glutamate is involved in memory and learning, it helps to store the information that can lead to cravings and relapse after abstinence from drug use. Later on, cues in the environment, a place, of, a, place a smell, or a person, for example, can trigger addiction memories that can then prompt relapse-prone thinking. While that may sound like a large dose of bad news, here's the good news. An understanding of how glutamate influences learning suggests that behavioral therapy is one of the most promising treatments for overcoming addictions. Molecular biologist and addiction specialist Eric Nessler explains that people can unlearn aspects of addiction and read and relearn new things to do in life by establishing new behaviors that provide an alternative focus. Like a house with circuits that link switches to lights in the rooms, the brain has circuits too, and they can become dysfunctional. But circuitry in houses and brains can be improved, rewired, and restored. New experiences, thoughts, actions, and behaviors affect, affect the structure and function of the brain. The ongoing process of learning new positive behaviors and ways of thinking can help any person overcome the tangled roots of addiction. Addiction of any kind has many possible roots, including emotional, physical, environmental, and genetic. It is important to understand the strength of the enemy in order to develop a strategy for decided victory. Addictions can creep into the lives of the vulnerable or unwary in many forms, crossing all racial 
class, social, edu educational, and economic boundaries with code impartiality. Emotional behavior, behavioral, spiritual, and lifestyle factors are involved in addictions. Finding lasting freedom requires positive change in every one of these areas. Are there environmental or genetic factors that increase, that increase the risk of developing addictions? Anything that lives and grows responds to its environment. Environmental factors and genes can influence a person's vulnerability to addiction. Studies of juvenile offenders consistently reveal three prominent features they share. Drug involvement, a history of family violence, and neurological or cognitive vulnerabilities. The more of these features they possess, the more likely they are to struggle with addiction, crime, and violence. Why? Well, for seven reasons. Drug involvement affects the ability of the brain to experience normal pleasure, where the user is of the drug. Because a drug user often experiences depression when not using the drug, drug addiction lends itself to increased drug taking, risk taking, and other addictive behaviors. Addictive drugs have a profound impact on the brain's reward circuits and increase the likelihood of, a, of crime, addiction, and long-term mood disorders. While a person may begin using drugs for many reasons, addictive drugs can create problems where none may have existed before because of what they do to the brain. Second, crime, especially violent crime, is associated with drug use. One study of 85 adolescent criminals showed that 82% were drug-dependent. Surprisingly, adolescents comprise only 8% of the population but commit more than 50% of the nation's crimes. Just experiencing or witnessing violence has an emotional and physiological impact on body and brain function, especially as a child in the area of the brain where the emotional networks are being formed. Changes occur in neural patterns and gene expression that may put the child at higher risk for addictions. Sensation-seeking behavior and violence later in life. Witnessing or experiencing trauma can also produce changes in brain and body chemistry that foster the inclination toward violence, depression, and addiction. It is not uncommon for emotionally or physically traumatized individuals to attempt to control rage, depression, nightmares, and intrusive thoughts by using heroin cocaine, or alcohol. We could expand that list to include tobacco, food, television, gambling, pornography, compulsive overeating, or any other number of mind-numbing 
health-destroying habits. Third, prolonged exposure to stress affects both expects affects how efficiently glands and nerve cells circuits respond to stress over time. Early exposure to profound stress actually influences which genes in the brain are activated and the way brain hormones and neural systems are developed. Early exposure to traumatic events not only predisposes a person to illness later in life, but also increases hormones responses to stress in adulthood, increasing the likelihood of depression. For various reasons, some infants' brains are more vulnerable to addiction, such as children born to drug-addicting mothers or alcohol abusers or who have other inborn cognitive impairments. Babies of mothers who are chronically stressed are more likely to suffer from anxiety and depression as adults. This is partly because the mother's chronic stress alters the development of the baby's stress system, leaving the baby more sensitive to environmental stressors. Fortunately, the brain is resilient in childhood as well as adulthood, and recovery, restoration, and renewal is possible even when inheritance and environmental have dealt a hard blow. Winning any war depends on knowing the strength of the enemy and also having a powerful catch of weapons to win a decided victory. We have seen the strength of the enemy and that the tangled roots of addiction can have genetic, environmental, and behavioral elements. But the weapons available to win the war against addiction are mighty. They include creating an environment both internal and external, creating a lifestyle, creating a community, and creating a spiritual connection. These weapons used together play a powerful role in overcoming liabilities, amending weaknesses, building strength, coping with stress, and and experiencing permanent recovery from addiction. Damage but not doomed. Anytime a food drug or activity such as using pornography or excessive television viewing is persistently used to avoid dealing with life's pain and challenges or is used as a substitute for unmet needs, addiction may loosen dangerously Addiction may loom dangerously near. But there is a wide difference between vulnerability and destiny. A significant distinction between risk and predetermined fate. There are many who are at high risk for addiction, who overcome the odds and become stellar citizens. We see others who have many of life's advantages, but nonetheless become helpless victims of addictions not realizing the potency of the addictive substance or activity. Studies may reveal certain links, and understanding those links is important for intervention and therapy. 
but they do not predict success or failure. It is important to understand where we have come from, but it is equally important to know what we do have to remain stuck there. There we can go on. Brain structure is not predetermined and fixed. Even when early experience has not been good, permanent. According to neuropsychiatrist John Ratey, we can alter the ongoing development of our brains and thus our capabilities. Poverty, alienation, drugs, hormonal imbalances, and depression don't dictate failure. Wealth, acceptance, vegetables, and exercise don't guarantee success. Our own free will may be the strongest force directing the development of our brains and therefore our lives. Experience, thoughts, actions, and emotions actually change the structure of our brains by viewing the brain as a muscle that can be weakened or strengthened. We can exercise our ability to determine who we become Indeed, once we understand how the brain develops, we can train our brains for health, vibrancy, and longevity. Addictive people feel they have lost their willpower, the power to choose what they rationally know is right. There is a loss of a sense of self-control once a person has experienced addiction, changes have taken place in the brain that involve multiple brain circuits, especially circuits involving reward, motivation, drive, memory, conditioning, stress, and self-control. I would like to also share, again, um, also, as we were speaking about the addictions and of the brain, would also like to speak concerning how did Jesus deal with the addictive brain and how did he help those that were hurting and that were dealing with with a different type of addictions. Well, we will look at a few things that Jesus did. Well, Let's begin here. We will look at ministry of healing, healing of the soul. Now, many of those who came to Christ for help had brought disease upon themselves, yet he did not refuse to heal them. And when virtue from him entered into these souls, they were convinced of sin, and many were healed of their spiritual disease as well as of their physical maladies. Among these was, a, was the paralytic at Capernaum. Like the leper, this paralytic had lost all hope of recovery. His disease was the result of his sinful life, and his sufferings were embittered by remorse. In vain he had appealed to the Pharisees and doctors for relief. They pronounced him incurable, they denounced him as a sinner and declared that he would die under the wrath of God. The palsied man had sunk into despair. Then he heard of the works 
of Jesus. Others as sinful and helpless as he had been healed and he was encouraged to believe that he too might be cured if he could be carried to the Savior. But hope fell as he remembered the cause of his malady, yet he could not cast away the possibility of healing. His great desire was relief from the burden of sin. He longed to see Jesus and receive the assurance of forgiveness and peace with heaven. Then he would be content to live or to die according to God's will. There was no time to lose. Already his wasted flesh bore signs of death. He besought his friends to carry him on his bed to Jesus, and this they gladly undertook to do. But so dense was the crowd that had assembled in and about the house where the Savior was that it was impossible for the sick man and his friends to reach him or even to come within hearing of his voice. Jesus was teaching in the, house, in the home of Peter. According to their custom, his disciples sat, sat close about him, and there were Pharisees and doctors of the law sitting by, who were come out of every village of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. Many of these had come as spies, seeking an accusation against Jesus. Beyond these thronged the, the promiscuous multitude, the eager, the reverent, the curious, and the unbelieving. Different nationalities in all grades of society were represented, and the power of the Lord was present to heal. The spirit of life brooded over the assembly, but Pharisees and doctors did not discern his presence. They felt no sense of need, and the healing was not for them. He had filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he had sent away empty, Luke one fifty three. Again and again, the bearers of the paralytic tried to push their way through the crowd, but in vain. The sick man looked about him in unutterable anguish. How could he relinquish hope when the long for help was so near? At his suggestion, his friends bore him to the top of the house and breaking open the roof, let him down at the feet of Jesus. The discourse was interrupted. The Savior looked upon the mournful countenance and saw the pleading eyes fixed upon him, while he knew the longing of that burdened soul. It was Christ who had brought conviction to his conscience when he was yet at home. When he repented of his sins and believed in the power of Jesus to make him whole, the mercy of the Savior had blessed his heart. Jesus had watched the first glimmer of fate grow into a conviction that he was the sinner's only help, helper, and had seen it grow stronger with every effort to come into his presence. It was Christ who had drawn the sufferer to himself. Now in words that fell like music on the listener's ear, the Savior said, Son, be of good cheer, thy sins be forgiven thee. Matthew 9, verse 2 The burden of guilt rose from the, sinners, from the sin, sick man's soul. 
he cannot doubt. Christ's words reveal his power to read the heart. Who can deny his power to forgive sins? Hope takes the place of despair and joy of oppressive gloom. The man's physical pain is gone, and his whole being is transformed. Making no further request, he lay in peaceful silence, too happy for words. Many were watching with breathless interest every move meant in this strange transaction. Many felt that Christ's words were an invitation to them. Were they not soul-sick because of sin? Were they not anxious to be freed from this burden? But the Pharisees, fearful of losing their influence with the multitude, said in their hearts, He blasphemed. Who can forgive sins but one, even God? Mark chapter 2, verse 7. Fixing his glance upon them, beneath which they cowered and drew back, Jesus said, Wherefore think ye evil in your heart? For whereby, for whether, excuse me, for whether is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and walk, but that ye may know that the Son of Man had power on earth to forgive sins, he said, Turning to the paralytic, Arise, take up thy bed, and go unto thy house. Matthew 9, verses 4 to 6. Then he who had been born on a litter to, to Jesus rose to his feet with the elasticity and strength of youth. And immediately he took up the bed and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw it on this fashion, Mark 2, verse 12. It, re it required nothing less than creative power to restore health to that decaying body. The same voice that spoke life to man, created from the dust of the earth, had spoken life to the dying paralytic, and the same power that gave life to the body had renewed the heart. He who at creation spake, and it was, who commanded and stood fast, Psalms 33, 9, had spoken life to the soul dead in trespasses and sins. The healing of the body was an evidence of the power that had renewed the heart. Christ bade the paralytic arise and walk, that ye may know, he said, that the Son of Man had power on earth to forgive sins. <coughs> Excuse me. The paralytic found in Christ healing for both the soul and the body. He needed health of soul before he could appreciate health of body. Before the physical malady could be healed, Christ must bring relief to the mind and cleanse the soul from sin. This lesson should not be overlooked. There are today thousands suffering from physical disease who, like the paralytic, are longing for the message. Thy sins are forgiven. Thy burden of sin, with its unrest and unsatisfied desires, is the foundation of their maladies. They can find no relief until they come to the healer of the soul. The power which he alone can impart would restore vigor to the mind and health to the body. The effect produced upon the people by the healing of the paralytic was as if heaven 
had opened and revealed the glories of the better world. As the man who had been cured passed through the throng, blessing God at every step and bearing his burden as if it were a feather's weight, the people fell back to give him room, and with awe-strucken faces gazed upon him, whispering softly among themselves, We have seen strange things today. Luke 5.26 In the home of the paralytic, there was great rejoicing when he returned to his family, carrying with ease the couch upon which he had been slowly born from their presence, but a short time before. They gathered round with tears of joy, hardly daring to believe their eyes. He stood before them in the full vigor of manhood. Those arms that they had seen lifeless were quick to obey his will. The flesh that had been shrunken and leaden-hued was now fresh and ruddy. He walked with a firm free step. Joy and hope were written in every lineament of his countenance, and an expression of purity and peace had taken the place of the marks of sin and offering and suffering. Glad thanksgiving went up from that home, and God was glorified through his Son, who had restored hope to the hopeless and strength to the stricken one. This man and his family were ready to lay down their lives for Jesus. No doubt dimmed their fate, no unbelief marred their reality. To him who had brought light in, into their darkened home. Now therefore is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda. Having five porches in, the, in these lay a great multitude of impotent folk of bind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. John chapter 5, verse 2 and 3. At certain Caesars, seasons, the waters of this pool were agitated and it was commonly believed that this was the result of supernatural power and that whoever first, after the troubling of the pool, stepped into the waters would be healed of whatever disease he might have. Hundreds of sufferers visited the place, but so great was the crowd when the water was troubled that they rushed forward, trampling underfoot men, women, and children, weaker than themselves. Many could not get near the pool. Many who had succeeded in, in reaching it died upon its banks. Shelter Shelters had been erected about the place that the sick might be protected from the heat by the day and by the chilliness of the night. There were some who spent the night in these porches, creeping to the edge of the pool, day after day in the vain hope of relief. Jesus was at Jerusalem, walking alone in apparent meditation and prayer. He came to the pool of Bethesda. He saw the wretched Sufferers, watching for that which they supposed to be their only chance. He saw the wretched sufferers watching for that which supposed to be their only chance of cure. He longed to exercise his healing power and make every sufferer whole, 
but it was the Sabbath day. Multitudes were going to the temple for worship, and he knew that such an act of healing would so excite the, the prejudice of the Jews as to cut short his work. But the Savior saw one case of supreme wretchedness. It was that of a man who had been a helpless cripple for 38 years. His disease was in a great degree the result of his own evil habits and was looked upon as a judgment from God. Alone and friendless, feeling that he was shut out from God's mercy, the sufferer had passed long years of misery. At the time when it was expected that the water would be troubled, those who pitied his helplessness would bear him to the porches. But as the favored but as the favored moment he had no one to help him in. He had seen the rippling of the water, but had never been able to get farther than the edge of the pool. Others stronger than he would plunge in before him. The poor, helpless sufferer was unable to to contend successfully with the scrambling, selfish crowd. His persistent efforts toward the one object and his anxiety and continual disappointment were fast wearing away the, the, the remnant of his strength. The sick man was lying on his mat and occasionally and occasionally lifting his head on, to gaze at the pool when a tender, compassionate face bent over him and the words, Wilt thou be made whole? arrested his attention. Hope came to his heart. He felt that in some way he was to have help. But the glow of, of but the glow of encouragement soon faded. He remembered how often he had tried to reach the pool, and now he had little prospect of living till it should again be troubled. He turned away wearily, saying, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool, but while I am coming, another step it down before me. Jesus bids him, Rise, take up thy bed and walk. With a new hope, the sick man looks upon Jesus. The expression of his countenance, the tones of his voice are like no other. Love and power seem to breed from his very presence. The cripple's fate takes hold upon Christ's word. Without question, he sets his will to obey. And as he does, his whole body responds. Every nerve and muscle thrills with new life and helpful action comes to, to his crippled limbs. Springing to his feet, he goes on his way with firm, free step, praising God and rejoicing in his newfound strength. Jesus had given the palsied man an assurance. Jesus had given the palsied man no assurance of divine help. The man might have said, Lord, if thou wilt make me whole, I will obey thy word. He might have stopped to doubt and thus have lost his one chance of healing. But, no, he believed Christ's word. 
believed that he was made whole, immediately he made the effort and God gave him the power. He willed to walk and he did walk. Among, among, I mean, acting on the word of Christ, he was made whole. Again, acting on the word of Christ, he was made whole. By sin, we have been severed from the life of God. Our souls are policy. Of ourselves, we see no more. By sin we have been severed from the life of God. Our souls are palsied. Of ourselves, we are no more capable of living a holy life than, we, than was the impotent man capable of walking. Many realize their helplessness. They are longing for, the spiritual, for that spiritual life which will bring them into harmony with God and are striving to obtain it. But in vain, in despair they cry, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Romans 7.24 Let these desponding, struggling ones look up. The Savior is bending over the purchase of His blood, saying with inexpressible tenderness and pity, Wilt thou be made whole? He bids you arise in health and peace. Do not wait to feel that you are made whole. Believe the Savior's word. Put your will on the side of Christ. Will to serve Him. And in acting upon His word, you will receive strength. Whatever may be the evil practice, the master passion, which through long indulgence binds both soul and body, Christ is able and longs to deliver. He will set free the captive that is held by weakness and misfortune and the chains of sin. The sense of sin has poisoned the springs of life. But Christ says, I will take your sins. I will give you peace. I have bought you with my blood. You are mine. My grace shall strengthen your weakened will, your remorse for sin, and I will remove. When temptations assail you, when care and perplexity surround you, when depressed, when depressed and discouraged, you are ready to yield to despair. Look to Jesus, and the darkness that encompasses you will be dispelled by the bright shining of His presence. When sin struggles for the mastery in your soul and burdens the conscience, look to the Savior. His grace is sufficient to subdue sin, let your grateful hearts, trembling with uncertainty, turn to Him. Let your grateful heart, trembling with uncertainty, turn to Him. Lay hold on hope, on the hope set before you. Christ waits to adopt you into His family. His strength will help your weakness. He will lead you step by step. Place your hand in His and let Him guide you. Never feel that Christ is far away. He is always near. His loving presence surrounds you. Seek Him as one who desires to be found of you. He desires you not only to touch His garments, but to walk with Him in a constant communion.
The Feast of Tabernacles had just ended. The priests and rabbis at Jerusalem had been defeated in their plottings against Jesus, and at evening and as evening fell, every man went unto his own house. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives. From the excitement and confusion of the city, from the eager crowds and the treacherous rabbis, Jesus turned away to the quietness of the olive groves where he could be alone with God. But in the early morning, he returned to the temple. And as the people gathered about him, he sat down and taught them. He was soon interrupted. A group of Pharisees and scribes approached him and dragging with them a terror-stricken woman, whom, with hard, eager voices, they accused of having violated the seventh commandment. Pushing her into the presence of Jesus, they said, with a hypocritical display of respect, Master, this woman was taken in adultery, in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? They pretended reverence, veiled a deep laid plot for his ruin. Should Jesus acquit the woman? He might be charged with despising the law of Moses. Should he declare her worthy of death? He could be accused to the Romans as one who assumed authority belonging only to them. Jesus looked upon the scene, the trembling victim in her shame, the hard-faced dignitaries devoid of even human pity. His spirit of stainless purity shrank from the spectacle. Giving no sign that he had heard the question, he stooped and, fixing his eyes upon the ground, began to write in the dust. Impatient at his delay and apparent indifference, the accusers drew nearer, urging the matter upon his attention. But as their eyes following those of Jesus fell upon the pavement at his feet, their voices were silenced. Their trace before them were the guilty secrets of their own lives. Rising and fixing his eyes upon the plotting elders, Jesus said, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And stooping down, he continued writing. He had not set aside the Mosaic law, nor infringed upon the authority of Rome. The accusers were defeated. Now their robes of pretended holiness tore from them. They stood guilty and condemned in the presence of infinite purity, trembling lest the hidden iniquity of their lives should be laid open to the multitude with bowed heads and downcast eyes they stole away leaving their victim with the pitying Savior Jesus arose and looking upon the woman said where are those thine accusers hath no man condemned thee she said no man Lord and Jesus said unto her neither do I Condemn thee, go and sin no more. The woman had stood before Jesus, covering, cowering with fear. His words, he does without sin among you, let him first cast a stone, had come to her 
as a death sentence. She dared not lift her eyes to the Savior's face, but silently awaited her doom.